0: Let's pray. Father, we we thank You that we serve and follow a Savior who does not yell at us to get our act together but makes Himself like us in order to die for us. And Lord, with all that's going on this week, maybe some of us, our Christmas looks remarkably normal and we're really excited about that. Maybe we are missing some dear loved ones and we're grieved greatly. And maybe we still have a lot to do for whatever our week holds. But Lord, would now, in this moment, would you quiet our heart, quiet our minds, so we can hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. From time to time, I, I find myself at a just a truly incredible restaurant. And I'm not trying to brag here, but I mean some of these places are, are world renowned. They have three Michelin stars. And when I say I find myself at, what I really mean is I watch a Netflix documentary about a chef that works at one of these restaurants where they custom tailor every aspect of the guests experience to build up to the meal to build up to the highlight of the meal whatever that is what, you know and it's how the guests are seated how they get their reservations the way the napkins are folded and we haven't even gotten to the food prep everything is built around the customer experience There was one chef documentary I was watching and, and this chef, she desired that each time a customer came, they would have a completely new experience. So she kept track of what customers came when and what menu they had so that every time customers came, the menu would be completely different. And another chef wanting to educate his his patrons on the the source of food and what your food consumes to become the food it is. And they do all of this while making the food taste as good as humanly possible. Now let's, let's imagine that we are not watching a Netflix show about fine dining, but that we are actually together, you and I, we are together at one of these restaurants. And we sit down this very exclusive room and we have an appetizer of blue crab eight ways and then they bring out a salad made of vegetables you've never heard of but it somehow is the best tasting thing you've ever had even though you don't even like vegetables you think if this was all salad i would be unbelievably healthy and then the main dish comes out with some cut of meat that you don't know anything about but the The main dish is just simply a work of art to look at and to taste. And and it's somehow made better by a squid ink reduction. And it was on fire when it got to your table. And everything has been absolutely amazing. And then it's time for dessert. And the waiter comes out and they say, what would you like for dessert? And we look at each other and we think, oh man, this chef has just been unbelievable. It is the chef's choice what we have for dessert. And we're sitting there, we're dreaming of all these different things the dessert could be. And out on a plate comes what looks like a very ordinary brownie. And the the waiter goes to explain the dish as they have everything else so you can know what you're about to consume. And they say, the chef calls this Crocker comma Betty. Well, that's just not right. Why would there be all this buildup for the plainest dessert ever? I mean, vanilla ice cream could be fancier than this Crocker comma Betty. And it would feel like a little bit off, a little bit of a letdown after the culinary journey we've just been on. Matthew, up to this point, has taken us on an incredible tour through the Old Testament via the first two years of Christ on earth. He's taken us through the covenant promise of God, from Abraham to David to Jesus. He's taken us through Isaiah to Emmanuel, God with us. He's taken us to the the Magi and the nations coming to worship and to Bethlehem, out of which will come a ruler. And he's taken us to the rescue and to eat back to Egypt and the exile and the one who's going to end the exile. He's brought us quotes from Isaiah and Micah, Hosea, Jeremiah, and more. And this buildup has been incredible as well as beneficial. It has shown us the majesty of the baby toddler Jesus and has brought us to this passage where we are now, starting in verse 19 of Matthew 2. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise and take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled so that he, that he would be called a Nazarene. This passage. This doesn't echo of the majesty that we've grown accustomed to. This doesn't... Echo of the kingliness that we've grown accustomed to in Matthew. In fact, it doesn't even quote a single Old Testament passage, which I might add is not fair to the expository preacher. So what is Matthew doing? Is he just leaving the reader out to dry here? Is he just trying to find a way to end this section? Is he like some college student who has procrastinated his paper and just needs to draw it to a conclusion so he can get it turned in on the deadline? Is he just trying to get Jesus back to Nazareth for some sort of fulfillment here? Or is Matthew, in a much more subtle way, telling us something about God and the ministry of Christ? I think that's it. See, the return to Nazareth is not an anticlimactic deflation of storytelling, but a subtle depiction of God's greatness. And it depicts God's greatness through His sovereign power. We do not know how long Mary and Joseph lived in Egypt with Jesus. We don't know if they had any other children while in Egypt. It's very possible they did. They they were probably there for a while. But true to his word, the the angel which warned Joseph to leave Bethlehem now says it's safe to come back. And Joseph, what a relief it must have been that they could finally go home and be around friends and family. And as a carpenter, he could finally be back around his old clientele. This And and especially back around their own language and culture again. This must have been quite the relief. And then they arrive in Israel and word on the street is that Archelaus is much worse than Herod. And he thinks, well, I can't go there. And he was even warned in a dream again. And I imagine for Joseph, he had to be thinking like, God, what what are you doing? You send me by a dream to Egypt. You send me by a dream back saying it's safe. And now you tell me in another dream, it's not actually safe to be here and I have to go up to Galilee and Nazareth. For Joseph, this had to feel like some sort of Game of whack-a-mole that he was on the wrong end of. Gotta go down this hole and pop up another and hope it's safe there and then go down and pop up again. Go here, go there. No, over there. This was the trajectory of his life. Joseph learned like so many people that, that marriage and childhood does not make life easier. And he may have felt that he was at the mercy of whichever pseudo-dictator was in control at the moment. But this was not a random game of geographical ping-pong. Joseph and his young family were not a ball being bounced randomly around depending on who's controlling the region. He was not at the mercy of the pseudo-dictator, but he was firmly in the hand of a sovereign God. They were in the hand of God who was sovereignly protecting and guiding their steps for their safety and for his purposes. See, God is not reactionary. He is a careful planner who uses events around us to work his will. God was in control of everything the whole time. He was not outwitting the tyrants. He was using the tyrants and all the things around them to make His plan come to fruition. And this is a a complicated aspect of perspective when it comes to walking with God. That God is fully sovereign. He is fully in control. He knows everything. And yet we feel like so many times we're at the mercy of the moment. And this is a great mystery when it comes down to our choice and God's will and God's plan. I mean, Scripture says that every day is planned out for me before one of them comes to be, and I don't even know what I'm having for lunch today. Both of those things are true. God has sovereign power. And for Joseph, I'm sure it didn't always feel like that. But Joseph's feelings did not determine the the breadth of God's power. And my feelings of confusion, of not knowing what tomorrow or next year brings, all those feelings I have do not determine how much God is in control of my life. And the, the older I've gotten, the more I've felt the need to be reminded of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. To trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. It's the verse you learn after John 3, 16. And it seems so simple when I was a child, and it seems so necessary now that with everything I'm doing, that I would trust the Lord and trust that God has a better perspective and a better handle on what's going on than I do. I don't know why things are falling apart around me. I don't know why things are going well around me. But God has a plan, and I'm going to trust that He knows more about this than I do. That in every aspect of my life I'm going to acknowledge his sovereign power and I'm going to let him lead me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That I'm going to let him lead me. I'm going to submit to his will. Joseph, we don't know all the struggle he had. We don't know his inner dialogue on that walk back to Israel. And then when he got that dream about Archelaus and he's like, are you kidding me? Like, when are the dreams going to stop? When is the moving going to stop? We don't know his inner dialogue, but we do know that he trusted the Lord and he allowed the Lord to lead him. And we hold so highly Joseph's righteousness from not quietly divorcing Mary. But this is also his righteousness that we need to pay attention to, that that. Joseph trusted the Lord and allowed the Lord to lead him. And when we think of the ways God's sovereignty is moving, we should be sure that we see it alongside his redemptive will. That there's subtle depictions of God's greatness here through his redemptive will as well. And it's in this second move that they have to not only, they don't only go back to Israel, which was a relief, but now they have to go to Galilee, to Nazareth. Like this is Joseph's hometown. This is stomping grounds. But Matthew writes this in such a way as to make it clear to us that this was not their desire. That he has to be warned in a dream to go there so Jesus can be called a Nazarene. This is an undesired but necessary move. It was necessary for the safety, as Archelaus, history tells us, not just the rumors here in the text, not just what you can infer. History tells us Archelaus was just as bad as bad, if not worse, than his father. It was necessary for Jesus to live there. It was necessary for Jesus to live in Nazareth. God directed them here so Jesus would have another name and a locational identity, that he would be called a Nazarene. He needed to not only be born in Bethlehem and to go to Egypt and come back, but he needed to be called a Nazarene. And Matthew appeals to Old Testament fulfillment for his reasoning, but then it takes a pretty vague turn because he doesn't quote any of the Old Testament here. So what is he doing? There's a couple things he's doing. One is highly possible, and the second I would say is certain. So the first that's highly possible is he's doing, Matthew's doing what Hebrews do. He's using puns and wordplay. As the, the word Nazarene is very, very similar to the Hebrew word for branch that he might be called a branch. Hebrew literature loves puns. So for Matthew to use one here to communicate an Old Testament truth is not a stretch at all. But it's not just any branch, but a very significant branch. The shoot from the root, the stump of Jesse. As the book of Isaiah opens, there's a summary in the first five chapters of basically the whole theme and, and trajectory of the book of Isaiah. And one of the things you notice in those first five chapters is just an abomination of the nation of Israel. That they will be wiped out and wiped out again and wiped out again. And if the bus hasn't run them over enough times, they're probably going to put it in reverse and bring it back just for one more for good measure. And then in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah gets his call, his preaching message, what he's told he's going to be talking about. God says, that, God says you're, going to, you're going to make this, these people uh, dull heart, their, their ears heavy, their eyes blind. And Isaiah says, how long, O Lord, am I going to be doing this ministry? And God says, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, the house is without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it'll be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. So he's saying the people of God will be like this burned up tree with a remaining stump. The holy seed is its stump. And it's a really interesting place to leave off. That God says that in Isaiah's ministry in the years following, what he's going to do is he's going to tear down Israel to the point of a burned out stump. But in that stump is going to be the seed, the seed of the woman who will bruise the serpent's head. And then in Isaiah 11, he says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge of the fear of the Lord. He will will be a judge. He will be a righteous ruler. Through him, verse 9, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. There's a branch coming. So, this is the possible. Because smoldering stumps get forgotten. Nazareth was a place that was forgotten. Smoldering stumps get forgotten and passed over. And it's possible that the people are like, you know, we just don't know if that one's ever really going to happen. Or maybe it'll just happen in a very different way that we can't see coming. But the way a stump gets passed over, I think, points to the greater reason for Jesus to be called the Nazarene. And that's because to be called the Nazarene was a derogatory thing. This wasn't like a great place to be from. (laughs) This is like. North Dakota or Council Bluffs like it's just it's just not good like you're not thinking like oh man I really I have to go in for heart surgery I really hope my surgeon is from Nazareth because that's where the best and the brightest come from like like of all places like I'm I'm gonna die he's from Nazareth this isn't gonna go well I'm gonna it's gonna be bad And perhaps the best picture we get of this is when Jesus is calling his disciples and Philip goes out to Nathaniel and says, we found the Christ, the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And Nathanael doesn't say, I bet you're right. He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? This is an implicit fulfillment of Isaiah 53, the rejection of Christ. See, up to this point, We've just been getting all this really good stuff about Jesus. But here, he's going to be called a Nazarene. He's going to be rejected. That He grew up before them like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Why this ending in this string of prophecies? Why would Matthew bring us to this point? It's very peculiar when he starts <clears throat> with the covenant fulfiller, when he starts with, when he goes to Emmanuel and the ruler from Bethlehem and the one who ends the exile. He goes to all these places and it's like this buildup, this buildup, this buildup. And then it's, he's going to be a Nazarene, he's going to be rejected. It's kind of like going to a three-star Michelin Michelin three-star restaurant and then bringing out a very plain brownie called the Crocker comma Betty. Now imagine we're back in that restaurant and we're looking at this brownie and we're thinking,, Listen, did, we, did we end up in a waffle house all of a sudden? Like what is going on? And we'd really have two choices. One is to say, This chef has crossed from genius to madman and we're sending this back to the kitchen. And the other would be to say, the chef has done so much, I just trust him on this and I'm going to take a bite. And you find out that this very ordinary looking brownie is the most decadent thing you've ever had. We as people, oh man, we crave heroes. We crave someone who's going to come in and lead the charge and take over and get power. We crave the next covenant. We crave God with us. We crave the ruler out of Bethlehem. We crave the one who's going to end our exile. We crave it. Give us that. We don't want the Nazarene. rejected one. That doesn't fit. But what we need to realize and what Matthew is telling us as he's wrapping this up, as he's wrapping up his foundation to who Jesus is to go into the rest of his gospel, is he's telling us the Emmanuel ruler, exile ender did not come to raise an earthly kingdom of unsurpassed geopolitical power, but to give salvation, and to build the kingdom of God by providing salvation to every nation. Nazarene doesn't fit our hopes and dreams. It doesn't fit the Savior we want, the Savior we would choose, the Savior we would fabricate. It seems out of place, but it is altogether necessary. And so the question sits for us, what will you do with the Nazarene? The other prophecies were really easy for us to hear and worship and marvel at, but what will you do with the Nazarene? Will you say, this isn't right, it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit my narrative, it doesn't fit my plan, it doesn't make sense to me, and so I'm just going to get rid of it? Or, will you trust? And will you say the Nazarene, the one who is rejected, he's going to be my ruler. He's going to be my Lord. I'm going to walk with him. Oh Lord, would you let us, oh Lord, help us to see this. God, help us to see the surpassing greatness of Jesus, that he is our Messiah, that he is our ruler, that he is the one who ends our exile, that gives us freedom from sin. Oh, God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand what you have done for us, that this baby was born to die on a cross for our sins. And as we rejoice in the coming of Christ, may we also rejoice in the salvation you made possible for us in him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.